0: You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. I'm Kyle Worley, and today I'm joined by my co-host, Jen Wilkin, and JT English. And we're going to be discussing the role of brothers and sisters in working together for theological formation in the life of seminaries, religious institutions, and in the life of the local church. We jumped in on this topic because a conversation was really initiated uh, with an article that John Piper and Desiring God put out a few weeks ago. We love that ministry. We love John Piper. I think we land in some different practices than where the article landed, but we just felt like it was a good opportunity to not blow through that article because we really love that man in that ministry, but to just say, well, we, we land in some different places and talk about how we're seeing those things play out in the life of our own team and in the life of this local church. And what we believe the Bible's vision is for male and female partnership when it comes to the cultural mandate, the Great Commission, and theological formation and partnership so we hope you enjoy the discussion all right so jt i just started west wing again (laughs) how many times have you watched west wing jt be honest
1: i've watched west wing five times from beginning to end okay what's the name of your dog bartlett what's the name of the president on west wing president bartlett and just to be clear my dog's name is spelled the same way as president bartlett with only one t at the end most people misspell my dog's name okay that's weird (laughs) (laughs) um okay so uh for the
0: listeners who maybe have not watched west wing um it's a show about the white house and we're not going to be talking about it on the podcast today. But JT... We good. should do a... Can we do a podcast
2: on the West Wing? Kyle, you're outnumbered on this one. I love the West Wing, no, too. No, I love the West Wing, too. I'm starting in on number three. My third time
0: through. Okay, okay, good. Yeah, so, I, so I'm familiar with it. So, JT, if you had to peg uh, yourself, Jin, and then my, me... Oh, man, and this our is char- so ...as hard. characters on West
1: Wing, who, who would you go well, with? Well, I'm definitely President Bartlett. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. I don't even know why I asked that that's question. Actually, that's actually not true. If I could be any character on The West Wing, I would be Sam Seaborn. Really? Yeah, yeah. I can see that. I, I really, really like Sam's character a lot. I kind of aspire to be like Sam a lot. Okay. Uh, this this person will remain unnamed, but I, when I first met somebody that I really respect and admire, when they were just getting to know me, before they knew I watched The West Wing, they said to me, you remind me of uh, a guy in a, char- a, a character in a show called The West Wing, Sam Seaborn. Mm-hmm. And I was like— Did
2: you hug him? Yeah, anything you body hug him?
1: I serve it the pleasure of you <laughs> did, for the rest of my life. Did that
0: guy's name rhyme with pal bowler?
1: Yeah, something like <laughs> okay, that. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so, uh, so, so uh, you are definitely—gosh, this is so hard. I mean, I know who you want to be, which which <laughs> colors it. Uh-huh. <laughs> but I'll just give it to you because you do remind me uh-huh. of Toby. Ah, thank you. Yeah. I
2: would have said that too. My spirit
1: animal. <laughs> yeah. It, do you remember the gift I gave you? Oh, yeah. A tennis here? ball. Yeah. Well, not a tennis ball. Oh, a like, racket ball. A little ball. racket ball Yeah. Thing. I, yeah. Remember. I remember.
2: I it. didn't get a gift, but that's cool. I, that's okay. Well, <laughs> yeah.
1: That's it's
2: a gift point. just to work with you guys. Yeah,
0: so, so it's. There we go. Go. Yeah. So, so who's Jen?
2: That's tough. It is not tough.
0: No, it is. Oh, you have a character that you immediately feel uh, like yeah. that's it? I mean, I think I have it too, but I kind of feel like I
1: shouldn't say. Mandy? Oh.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> you have to have watched the show. My wife,
0: every time she shows up, she goes, she's the worst. The worst.
1: Uh, the she's worst. worst. The worst. Yeah. You're definitely not Mandy.
0: I mean... I want to say CJ. Totally, I I want to say CJ. Okay,
2: I felt like. Why (laughs) were you scared about that? She's fantastic.
0: No, she's great. I just. No, she's great. She's great.
1: You're definitely (laughs) CJ.
0: Well, at this point, if we haven't lost you, you may be thinking, what did I tune in for? This is a West Wing recap. It's not. Um, There's another podcast for that out there. But today, we're actually going to be talking um, just about the way that brothers and sisters, that men and women in the life of the local church, but also just in the life of the world, Collaborate together in God's kingdom, and the reason that we're bringing this up is because there was an article that came out. Now it's been a few weeks, maybe even almost a month ago, and a lot of people were talking about it. And the article came from a source that we really love and a person we really respect. It was John Piper and Desiring God, and it was an article about the role of women in seminary teaching. And when I, I know that as a team, when we first read the article, we thought, "Okay, well we we might land in a different place." And we had some different convictions, but there was a lot of fire around the topic when it first came out. And it, it's really something that's close to our hearts because it's, it's something that we're trying to build here as a team, right? I mean, it's something that we've been aiming for and working together. And so we want to acknowledge that John Piper has been a huge formative influence on all three of us, uh, that he's been a huge formative influence on the life of this church. And we also want to uh, acknowledge that while we're speaking from a unique context and a unique situation, so is he, Bethlehem and their vision for seminary is deeply tied to their vision for the local church. Their seminary and their church share a lot of leadership overlap and has really been kind of tied at the hip. And so there is kind of a unique vantage point that they're speaking from. But we wanted to just kind of open up the conversation and talk about it from our perspective and the way that we've kind of been seeing this play out and the convictions that have been driving the, the goal that we've been aiming for. And so I'd love to just open up the conversation with this. I think a lot of times when we're talking about men and women, and specifically in complementarian circles, and we're card-carrying complementarians, right? <laughs> is
2: Happily. that a thing? It, well,
0: you don't have your card. If it I, is, it's the lamest it club the in the world. <laughs> 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 um, but uh, but we're, we we are in the complementarian tribe. We right? love these people. We are these people. But as we think about it, it, seems like the conversation starts often here. Okay, what can men do, and what can women do? And so it starts from immediately difference and right. division. Is that really the best place to begin? Is that where scripture begins?
2: Well, I I wouldn't say that's where scripture begins. I think that Genesis 2 is actually a a huge affirmation of actually that we have more in common than divides us, which is not to diminish the uh, truth that the things that make us not interchangeable matter a lot. But I think sometimes when it comes to complementarian thought, Because we're not exactly sure what to do with the differences, we see them as things that should separate us into different spheres instead of as necessary components of just about any sphere in the life of the church, that the reason that the woman is not interchangeable with the man is because her presence is actually needed, that that idea of it is not good for the man to be alone is probably speaking to a bigger issue than just that men should get married because they will otherwise be lonely.
1: Hmm. Yeah, some of the language that we've used in the past is that uh, is that men and women are each other's necessary allies mm-hmm. in the mission of God. That's that's uh, that's going forth from Genesis chapter one and chapter two is that we would be involved in a complementarian mission together, kind of both uh, participating in this cultural mandate and ultimately the Great Commission. And anytime we see a gender not participating in the cultural mandate of the Great Commission, we would want to say that, that mission suffers and that genders are suffering.
2: Right. And uh, I, I think it's important to be really clear. Anybody who's familiar with uh, the way that I talk to about these things and, and even what I do on a week to week basis in terms of ministry, I place an enormous value on single gender environments. Mm-hmm. What we are not arguing for here is that there ought to be no place in the church where there are just men gathered or just women gathered, but we do want to ask some questions with regard to leadership and with regard to authority in the local church and, uh, and how the differences of men and women working together versus in separate environments actually are for the good and the flourishing of the local church. And you just hit on something that I think is
0: really important in this conversation, and I think this is where we'll end up spending some some time, is that I feel like in complementarian circles, and I think it's reflected in this article, there is this equation, maybe it's a formula, that, that it goes something like, well, the highest form of leadership in the life of a local church is eldership. Eldership, complementarians are agreed upon, is reserved for men. Mm-hmm. So if eldership is the highest level of leadership in the life of a local church, and only men should hold that office, then shouldn't it just be that all leadership in the life of a local church or in the life of religious institutions is male in nature? Because listen, we're really, I mean, eldership's kind of the crown jewel and only men can be elders. Do we feel like some of that formula is at work in leadership conversations in the life of a local church and in religious institutions that are complementarian?
2: Well, yeah, and I think, you know, we're in a church of, of, a, of an enormous size here at the village, and so we've had to grapple with some of this in ways that a church that is maybe of 150 wouldn't necessarily. It may be possible that the elder pastor role in a smaller church is more comprehensive, but in our church, we're under no illusion that our elder pastor... Um, contributors are able to carry the entire load of leadership. And so we've had to think uh, about this in some lanes that perhaps other churches haven't.
1: Yeah, I think related to that too, even, even if, uh, let's just say, it seems like right now there's kind of this intramural conversation in, within complementarianism. And this is really kind of, I think, putting our thumb on the issue, at least from my my experience in the conversation is that, do we not have a vision though where we would say that, uh, that, that men, are or better said qualified men are the only ones who can hold the office of elder that elders is to be there to be the overseers the the, the, the the those who are kind of guarding doctrine teaching the, the mm-hmm. apostolic deposit and giving it to the church we would still want to say that there is absolutely a necessary place for women to have formal channels of input into that room or into that elder body because that's fifty percent of the congregation or more mm-hmm. at times right mm-hmm. yeah and I think even more than just formal levels of input
0: certainly we believe that there are men and women who will not serve as elders in the life of a local church, who should still be leading in the life Absolutely. of a local church? Yeah, because I feel like one of the things that happens is that when we equate kind of eldership as the highest level of authority, which it, it is in the life of a local church, and we say, "Well, that's really the the place where you can most lead," it doesn't just undermine women leading in the life of a local church; it can undermine men leading in the life that's of a right. local church as well, mm-hmm. right?
2: Or it should. It often doesn't. You know, sure. a lot of times because we can fall into thinking that holy equates leadership and authority as masculine. Mm-hmm. Uh, men are often de facto given leadership positions that women are not considered for just because they're men. Yeah. Well, what what are, I mean,
0: and maybe we should pause here. What are some of the unique strengths that women bring to leadership that would be neglected if they weren't invited into that?
2: Well, you know, you can talk about them in generalities. Obviously, we're always sure. talking about individuals, not you know just categories. But I do think that we, when we, when we root this in an understanding biology, which right. is really where complementarians take this, and for good reason, when you understand that women don't outgrow vulnerability the way that men do, you know, a man typically uh, grows to a, a form of physical strength that a woman just doesn't, and and it means that as an embodied female. I'm going to walk through life with a different vantage point than an embodied male will. And in fact, if you look at all of our social structures and governing structures, they're they're in place and they uh, accommodate um, typically men and, and male concerns because of this physical dominance issue that's been present since the Garden of Eden, right? Yeah. Which means that um, women are may typically have eyes for the marginalized, the voiceless, those who are more vulnerable with a little more immediacy than men will just mm-hmm. simply because they can develop a forgetfulness around those things as they move into adulthood.
0: I agree. This is so crucial for me. And really, you have taught me so much about this in the last uh, year, year and a half. that I've been working closely with you. I just feel like it's a part of this picture that I have not seen clearly uh, around the issue of, specifically of felt vulnerability mm-hmm. and certainly the church is seeing this play out and culture is seeing this play out right now with me too yes, and church absolutely. too right because that that is a very specific concrete application of going you know what there might have been systems at play there might have been structures at play that just were blinded from seeing some very obvious things right? Uh, that uh that were perpetuated because there were no women leading.
2: Well, and you know, even the response of uh, men to the Me Too movement has been, it's been bewilderment, right? Right, It's been like, wait, this is what life is like for you? And then just disbelief because it is so foreign to their experience. And I always like to say, I mean, I have four brothers and a dad and a husband who... I have great relationship with. I don't perceive men to be villain. Like my first right. thought about men is not that they're villains and they're out to keep the woman down. That's not been my experience. Um, but even the good men in my life have had a hard time grappling with that. This is the, the common shared experience of, of being a woman. Yeah.
0: And I think this is particularly relevant getting back to maybe the article that stimulated the discussion is that if there are no women seminary professors, which is, uh, which again, just to, to state where my cards are, I, I just don't think the Bible gives us that grounds. I think the Bible is very clear when it prohibits. And this is not one of the things it prohibits. So, so there's, there's that. But if you table that, I think a consequence of not having women speaking in seminary environments is that the next generation Of elders, if that's all that a seminary is meant to be training for, which is fine, I don't think it is, but if it was all that a seminary was aiming to train for, I still think there would be a role for people who would never hold the office of elder, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Both men and women, for that matter, who would never hold the office of elder, to teach future elders, hey, when you're in that position, you might need to look out for this because instinctively, you're probably not going to have your eyes open to it.
1: I think that's exactly right, especially as we think about, and I think w- what we want to do as we engage with this conversation, and particularly this article, is take it on its best merits. Like We, we would want uh, Pastor John to recognize his argument here, and I think you've done a good job of talking about what Bethlehem College and Seminary does. Right. They're thinking specifically about training pastors. But even in that, let's just say that argument is is uh, is true, it is inconceivable to me, and I think it's inconceivable to the biblical narrative that we would have a group of men who've been largely only formed by one gender, mm-hmm. men only. And I, I, it has it actually, if you think about these other movements that are happening right now, if they have not been shaped by another situated perspective, specifically that of, of women, they're going to be malnourished pastors and they're going to therefore have malnourished congregations.
0: Have you ever wondered what is God's heart towards you? Do you ever get stuck wondering how to study a Bible passage? The Courage for Life study Bibles for women and the Courage for Life study Bibles for men have over 1,400 Bible studies. That's a Bible study on every page of Bible text. Access to the Filament Bible app lets you dive even deeper. If you download the app and you scan the page number, you can open up a world of resources, including over 25,000 additional study notes, hundreds of videos, and a full audio Bible. Start discovering at courageforlifebible.com. That's courageforlifebible.com for incredible study notes and an incredible study Bible.
2: Absolutely. I had a conversation with a woman several weeks ago who was earnestly concerned that she would do material harm to her 13-year-old son if she were to instruct him in the scriptures. And... Um, you know, I had to reassure her, Hey, Hey, hang on a second. Mm -hmm. You know, like just by virtue of having more years than he does, you're always going to have wisdom that you can impart to him and you will always have a formative role in the life of your child. That's why the fifth command talks about honoring both your father and your mother. And it's, it's a command that's given to adult children, right? That, that there's always something to be learned from our biological parents. So I think if you draw that parallel out to the family of God, Mm -hmm. it's not just an issue of brothers and sisters, but that's a very beautiful part of it. It's also an issue of fathers and mothers. And I think that often we're missing a space in our understanding for the role of church mother, Mm -hmm. which can leave us in danger in the local church of functioning as a single parent authoritarian family Mm -hmm. where, where there's a father, but then there's an absentee mother.
1: This yeah. has been a pivotal part of the conversation for me, thinking about the local church as a family in a very special sense. So, the Bible is continually using this brother sister language or this Philadelphia love that's supposed to kind of uh, be embodied within the local congregation. But then, even this single uh, uh, parent home, as you've just described it, that also seems to be foreign to the New Testament. As you think about a passage that's been helpful for me is Romans chapter 16. Paul is continually commending the women who are participating in the mission of God with them. So, he commends Phoebe as a deacon of the church. It's likely that she's very involved in somehow the, 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 maybe the delivering of the letter to the church at Rome, or is at yeah. least involved in helping finance Paul's ministry. But then you also have in Romans chapter 16, verse 13, Paul says this, he says, Great Rufus chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. So I love, so, that. I love mm-hmm. that too. And I'm not trying to build up this entire complementary picture sure. from this, from this passage. I think this is a much bigger picture that the Bible provides us. But Paul here is acknowledging a woman who's been very influential in him. And I think he could probably have a very hard time removing her influence on his life from how he would be ultimately an apostle.
0: Right. And that's a great... We can probably list... dozens of instances where this happens. I love in Acts 18, talking about partnership, which is where I want us to head right now, but he talks about Apollos. So Apollos is preaching, preaching the gospel boldly in Ephesus, right? And then what does it say? He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. I love that Mm -hmm. because it's this partnership of a man and woman coming alongside Apollos and saying, Hey, let me explain to you. Like, you're missing some of the things here. Like, I love the fact that this man and woman get to collaborate together in theologically correcting one of the loudest mouthpieces for the gospel and the early church.
2: Mm -hmm. That's a
0: really beautiful picture of seeing collaboration and partnership.
2: And if you think about any time you've received loving critique from someone, it takes a high level of trust in that relationship to even be able to receive it. And so if it takes a high level of trust for a man to receive loving critique from a man, think about the level of trust required for a man to receive loving critique from a woman, right, and and yet, uh, if we develop church structures which only allow for men and women to sort of inhabit separate rooms, then there's no space for deep trust to develop between a man and a woman, yeah. so that a woman can give that input into the life of the church or into his leadership.
0: So we've been talking about this, I guess, kind of roundly, and we, we've moved a little bit, but what suffers if there's no partnership? We've mentioned a
1: few specific examples, but is there anything else that suffers? I mean, I feel like we could talk about this for a while, <laughs> but but I mean, I would want to point back to, again, just Genesis chapter one and two. The Lord seems to think that the cultural mandate and the mission of, of image bearers and the image of Jesus Christ ultimately being what captivates and uh, All of creation, that is what's going to suffer if we don't see men and women partnering together for the purpose of mission. Uh, That sounds... like a really big deal according yeah. to the vision of Genesis chapter one and chapter two is that is that there should not be many environments where we don't see men and women correspondingly partnering together for the sake of the kingdom.
2: If you look at the cultural mandate, the whole be fruitful and multiply, if the woman isn't added to the equation, there is no literal fruitfulness in that, in that relationship. You have to have the woman for there to be fruitfulness in the cultural right. mandate. So you pull that forward to the New Testament counterpart to the cultural mandate, to the great commandment, Mission, uh, be fruitful and multiply. Right, go and make image bearers. That's mm-hmm. the that's the the paraphrase for the Great Commission um, to go and make disciples. And so, if we can acknowledge that in the the first statement, there is no fruitfulness without the woman partnering with the man, then I think it follows that we would want to acknowledge that in the second statement, the Great Commission, fruitfulness and multiplication is not possible yes. without male female partnership.
0: Yes, that is very well said. So let's talk personally
2: um,
0: because I'd love – I could have spent the whole – all 20 minutes of our time talking on this just talking about the role of women informing me specifically. But I'd love to just open it up. What have been some of the specific examples that you have, how it's played out personally for the role of women in shaping and forming you?
1: Yeah, I'll give it I'll give one maybe personal example, but then also maybe a few institutional ones that have been helpful for me. So, I mean, uh, just part of my personal story was coming to know the Lord as a freshman in college, two weeks later meeting my wife, who had known the Lord for a lot longer. And from that day forward, my wife, Macy, has been by far the most uh, instructive Christian in my life in terms of embodying the way of Jesus Christ in incredibly beautiful ways. Uh, I, I can't point to somebody uh, who has been more formative in, in on my life and what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And of course, that, that isn't what we're talking about here in terms of uh, you know seminary education, which I want to get to next. Right. But, but there has been a woman who's been a part of my life who has been incredibly valuable. I could think of women at Dallas Seminary who were valuable in my education. I think of Sandra Glahn and Sue Edwards. Uh, but I also think of many of my colleagues classmates who were so inf- uh, influential in those early years of, of being in Greek class or church history class that were offering their perspectives in class that were absolutely invaluable to <laughs> think about there being environments in the classroom where, uh, where male students aren't partnering next to female students and vice versa, what was lacking. And those, those students that were involved in those classes were so helpful because they're thinking about te- the text from a different perspective. Yeah, yeah, yes. Uh, Esther Meek I, has been somebody. Oh, oh my
0: gosh. Fleming yeah. Rutledge recently. Yeah. Esther Meek. Writing. I mean, when I think about the way that I approach uh, the knowledge of God, is it, the, everything that I teach and the way that I go about researching, the way I go about studying has been affected by my time with Esther Meek, by just sitting in and listening mm-hmm. and reading her books. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's been I, – I, I cannot pull away the fingerprints. Uh that she's placed on my life. I think about, I mean, and this isn't to puff up Jen, but I think about my time with Jen, which has just been so formative on the, the pastor I'm aspiring to be, the student of scripture um, that I'm trying to be in my own personal study. Um, and so I love that we're not just getting to say like, oh yeah, w- we've had this experience, but I feel like it's something that we're getting to experience
1: right now. I feel like we get to experience this here. I mean, yeah. it's part of, uh, part of our role. I'm, I'm continually, I, I feel like it's such. I have such a Uh, great amount of joy of getting to partner with you guys in doing this. It's been so formative in my early years of pastoral ministry. Right. And I think it's been the feedback on the podcast.
2: Yeah, it's been fascinating. Ever since we started doing the podcast, the number of emails that I get from both men and women saying, I've never heard men and women sit down and talk this way to one another. And I think when we started doing this, we were like, this will be fun. Let's go do this. And right. we, I don't know how, how strategic we were about thinking about, uh, that being something that was communicated, but also, you know, people will say, Oh, you sound like you're having such a good time. And, and I, we're doing what we do when we're not in the studio, capturing a podcast, like, that's the that's what I love about it is like this is representative of the way that we interact on a daily basis with one another and it's just really been one of the just the greatest joys of my adult ministry experience has been to to get to interact with you guys on yeah. that level. So
0: JT I'd love because I've 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 heard you Encourage. I think, particularly of sometimes I've seen you speak to our uh, uh, our sisters who are interns in the life of our church right mm-hmm. now, and how you've addressed them and, and encouraged them as they consider what the Lord is calling them to do. And so, if there is maybe a young woman who read that article uh, or is listening to this podcast, and they're saying, "You know, I think the Lord is calling me," like the Lord is calling me to step into. Uh, the life of the mind. I want to go and pursue seminary education because I want to write books because right. I can't find any good books written by complementary theologians on the cross mm-hmm. or on the resurrection. Want, I, I want to step into that space. What, what would you tell them? How would you encourage them for leadership in the church or seminary or professorship or whatever? I'm
1: so glad we're, we're trying to answer that question because I think one of the unintentional effects of Pastor John's article is maybe a, a, a lack of a realization of some of the, the, the pain that that would cause. Uh, somebody who is interested in pursuing the life of the mind academically and theologically and in the life of an institution and a seminary, I, I don't think that was his intention, but sure. I, I do know for a fact that that, uh, based, based on some of the notes that I got, emails I got, that that was something that was deeply kind of startling and shaking for a lot of, uh, of women in the life of the church pursuing that. And so my encouragement to you would be, if you're listening to this and you're somebody who feels called to that, and maybe doesn't feel called to that, that the Lord is calling to that, uh, we need you full stop, this is something that is absolutely necessary, not only in institutions like seminaries and Bible colleges and other parachurch ministries, but in the life of the church. Your voice isn't just a nice component that is an add-on. It is an absolutely necessary ally for us thinking about theological education, both in the church and outside the church. And so please go forward. We know that your education might come at great cost, whether that be Mm -hmm. financial cost. We know that it comes at great cost related to uh, other family considerations and job considerations, but it is something that is so worthwhile. And most importantly needed So if you're listening to this and that's you We want to be uh, a part of this conversation That encourages you to press forward Into the mission of God of what he's calling you to do Because your mind matters How you contribute theologically and vocally To the life of the church matters So keep pushing forward Amen I
0: thought that was a really fruitful discussion And I'm grateful I'm grateful for your willingness to engage on the topic
1: And we're grateful that we had Can, the opportunity- can I maybe even just add something there too? <laughs> you I know I, I, what, here I, we go <laughs>
0: Because well, here's something that I I've learned. The, I take the mic from you. you to take it back. Maybe. Well,
1: here's something I've learned in the midst of this conversation. As it's something I've been thinking a lot about the last year or two, is a recognition that it is a conversation, and we need multiple kind of channels of input. Yes. And so we want to invite others to the conversation. Please. We realize that complementarity in terms of a theological vision is kind of uniform, but it is not uniform in terms of its practice. Right. And so that's something that we've tried to learn at the village is that we want to partner with men and women who might disagree with us slightly in terms of how this is practiced to sharpen church. us, yeah. but yet to sharpen us because we need that that happen. In the, in the midst of this conversation for me. And I think it happened for others. Uh, but we we also want to make sure that we are committed to this vision of complementarity because yeah. we do think it is what the Bible teaches. Yep. It's
2: been really encouraging that the conversation happened. It's I agreed. don't know that five or 10 years ago it would have. And so, I mean, that's a sign of health. I think that people are really thinking hard about these things. And, um, you know, we don't have to all agree on it. I do think that we all have to be able to visibly demonstrate the the equal value of women mm-hmm. at the local church level. And that's going to, that's going to require different things of us depending on where we fall on the scale of complementarity. Mm-hmm. But, um, we're allowed to disagree yep. on I this. Mean
1: that's, this, this could be an environment for evangelicals, specifically those of us in kind of maybe conservative slash, uh, maybe reformed circles that, that, that are committed to complementarianism is we can actually value maybe something that's even more important charity within theological dialogue love for one that's another that's always a good practice in the, in, <laughs> in the midst of disagreement which right. is t- which is hard for us on issues that are important that are culturally yeah. sensitive but this is a wonderful opportunity for us to do that with other brothers and sisters right yeah I agree
0: and, and we're active learners and so I think maybe just a fun way to kind of wrap this up is I think sometimes people hear this and like well they've already read all the books and settled all the things <laughs> and then they just get in the room and kind of just dump that out but that's not the case we're actively learning actively studying kind of trying to stoke the fires of the life of the mind and so I would love to just maybe end on kind of a I don't know a different note of what are you reading right now what are you enjoying what are you you learning
2: Jen? oh don't look at me I I mean I'm always reading stuff you know to prep for teaching but that feels like a cop-out to, to say that here and also my New year's resolution was that I was going to commit to pleasure read again mm. so what I'm about to say may not sound like pleasure reading but um <laughs> I'm I'm trying to read Anna Karenina this year oh yeah because my so son <laughs> has challenged me <laughs> I've never read any of the the Russian authors and mm. so this will be my first and I have an English degree so I probably should have come across them somewhere but I, I didn't so I feel like it's a gap in my yeah. my literary Exposure.
0: I'm just imagining Jen Wilkin feet up on, at the beach with a 500 page in a
2: and I'm a mountain girl and a pug
1: you and a pug
2: to, and a tucked pug, in, yeah, tucked in sure. with a pug for sure yeah, you, when, when
1: you say that, uh, that you feel like it's a cop out to say something that you're not reading for teaching prep I don't know what <laughs> that means all I'm reading recently feels like that I'm reading two books I'm reading uh, commentary on 1st Corinthians not of course the whole thing front to back but just doing some, some research on Gordon Fee's 1st Corinthians commentary which is a really really fruitful book if that's something you're interested in. And then a book by David Benner called The Gift of Being Yourself is kind of outside of my normal maybe stream of reading. It's, it's a wonderful book. He's kind of playing on Calvin's idea of, uh, of uh, there's two kinds of knowledge, knowledge of God and knowledge of self and how we often emphasize the knowledge of God and appropriately so, but how we de-emphasize the knowledge of self. So what does it mm-hmm. mean to be you? Mm-hmm. is really what the book is exploring like who are you and it's it's kind of it's <laughs> kind of shaking if i'm honest in a way it's like okay i've not thought about this in a while yeah.
0: that book will jack you up yeah. <laughs> it will mess you up
2: uh
1: can <laughs> i borrow a pug
2: yeah. i, I, I love them a out c- a
1: comfort pug
0: yeah. um Long uh, i'm reading tish harrison warren's book the liturgy of the ordinary and i love it she is sharp i love the book i really do i feel like i uh, i preached recently and i was like hey you I, I just had to take a moment and like, hey, unrelated to what I'm doing, I got to sneak this quote in because you have to read this book. It's a very good book. Uh, and I feel like she has such a, I know we've talked a lot about liturgy on this podcast and we've talked a lot about story and narrative. We talk about that a lot in our environment. This book, more than any other book I've read, is really helpful of going, okay, this is what this means at 3.17 p.m. on Tuesday mm-hmm. in the middle of a mess when your kids are screaming and you didn't get everything done you want to get done. It's a really good book. So I really enjoyed it. For more information, you can look into the show notes in the podcast description. We'd be honored for you to leave us a podcast review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcast. You can find us online at trainingthechurch.com. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Knowing Faith. Uh, And and we have some incredible episodes coming up We have an episode coming up on the doctrine of sin We have an episode coming up with Tim Mackey from the Bible Project We have an episode coming up with Jeremy Treat on the crucified king We have an episode coming up with Michael Kruger on the canon And so some really exciting things coming up in future episodes We hope you enjoy the discussion Grace and peace